Well, good evening. It's a privilege to be together on this Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. I want to thank the children for singing for us. What a blessing it is to, to see them uh, here on Christmas Eve. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If not, I understand that there are lots of little ones around and you might be tending to them. I'll read uh, these verses for us. We're going to focus in particular on verses 9 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us this evening. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Father, that we can sing your praises here this evening as a faith family. I thank you, Father, for all who are here uh, with us tonight as we worship uh, the Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to focus our attention on him the one who was born to die, that we might have everlasting life. We thank you for Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would help us now to give our attention to your word, albeit briefly, and we ask, Father, that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts, and we ask this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. It's no surprise to anyone, I say almost the same thing every year when I stand up here, that the most wonderful time of the year in the Johnson household is Christmas. Uh, we love Christmas. It starts early, way before Advent in our home. We're from the South, uh, so as soon as it gets below 70 degrees, it's Christmas time. Uh, every day, once we put our Christmas tree up, the first person awake plugs in the tree. Christmas music is on nonstop, thanks to Alexa. Our daughter Abigail has it running 24 hours a day. Christmas shows are on repeat. Christmas devotionals are read. Uh, when they're not being read, my kids remind me that we're not doing things the right way. Christmas songs are sung around our dinner table every night, and thanks to uh, our manual program this year, we were able to read one of the meditations along with it. Uh, Christmas traditions in our home are created and vigorously reinforced. Uh, for example, this year, we added Longwood Gardens, New York City, and Caroline around the borough. Uh, we love Christmas. We always get our tree the day after Thanksgiving. We always go see the Nutcracker at Westchester University. We always make Christmas cookies for family and friends. Megan's coveted cookies are scattered around this congregation even now. We always watch the Muppet Christmas Carol following this service every single year. We always do the same things because we love Christmas. But one of the things that we always do is spend a full day downtown in Philadelphia. And it is just like everything else we do. The same day, on repeat, every year. We eat at the same place, Tommy Denix. We mostly sit in the same spot in the middle of Reading Terminal Market. We walk on the same streets. We go to the same places. We ride the carousel. We walk around and we ice skate. We go to the same places. Our kids try to get us to buy the same things that we say no to the following year. We, we have the same conversations as we walk around. We always lay on the floor in the Wanamaker building as we watch the light show. We love doing new, the same things on repeat every year. We love it, especially when we can invite people to participate with us. But one of the things that strikes me every year and was maybe more striking this year is for the careful observer as they walk around the city, cities like 
Philadelphia, and cities like New York, that as you walk around and you hear the background music from Bing Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald and Michael Buble, as the season is being promoted as a time for family and friends, for children and peace, for toys and Santa, there is this meaning of Christmas that intrudes in the background as you listen, listen carefully to traditional songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing at the end of the Rockettes' Christmas Spectacular. Hear the words afresh. The everlasting Lord from highest heaven comes down to be the offspring of a virgin's womb to see God and sinners reconciled by laying his glory by that we may no more may die through an inward spiritual regeneration so radical that we call it new birth. Or during Handel's Christmas uh, Messiah, as we are standing up at the Kimmel Center, people who do not believe the words that they are singing say this, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, king of kings forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah, Lord of lords. Christmas is the one season of the year, every year, that everybody's on the same page, and whether they know it or not, they hum to the tune of the gospel while they're shopping, while they're decorating, while they're gallivanting around the city, while they're doing their Christmas traditions on repeat. So we remind ourselves every year in this service of the gospel, the good news of great joy of God's salvation, a salvation that Paul reflects on briefly in these verses. I'll highlight just a few things. Notice first, the content of salvation, verse nine. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. I just heard a shush. I just wanna remind everyone, the kids are no distraction to me. I am so glad that they are in this room. I'm glad that you are here, kids, hearing the gospel. And parents, I'm glad that you have your kids here hearing the gospel. The contrast between verse nine is startling when we look at wrath and salvation. Hear what Paul says. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. So the question for us this evening is, does this mean that there is no coming wrath because God has promised that there is salvation? Many people believe that God is not that kind of God, that he is a God that would not destine people for wrath. He is a happy God, and he brings everybody to everlasting life. Is that what Paul means in these verses? That, Paul, that God does not pour out his wrath on sin? Or is it that there is no wrath that is coming? Or is it that everyone will escape because some people will escape? Paul is not teaching us that everyone will escape. Paul is teaching us that there is a contrast for those who have trusted in Christ. The wrath of God has played an important role for Paul in this very letter. Chapter one, verse nine. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or chapter two, verse 14. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. In 1 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul is clear. God's holy anger is poured out against all evil. Wrath is coming. 
God's wrath against sin will be manifested. But what about the rest of the New Testament? It's important for us, especially this time of year, when we think of God as exclusively happy and so loving that he would not judge. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Friends, the word of God in the New Testament is clear. That God is unreservedly honest about the future of the world. The wrath of God is coming for all who have not trusted in this Christ that we have sung about. God's wrath is his personal revulsion against evil. But most of the people in this community, and most of the people walking on the streets that I was talking about, and most of the people singing those songs when they were standing in the middle of the Messiah chorus, do not believe the words that they are singing. They do not care to pay close attention to what it is that they are professing. The scripture says that everyone you know and everyone you will meet and everyone that you have ever seen at some deep level knows this to be true, but they have suppressed the knowledge. So the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. You see, when we come to Christmas, the downside is that we push aside the one thing that we don't want to think about, but that God brings into focus this season of the year. We don't want to think about why Jesus actually had to come. God sent his son into the world because sinners sinned in such a terrible way that God's wrath was going to be poured out upon them unless they believed by faith that the one that he sent would be, grow to die in their place as their substitute. Paul says, verse nine, that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Not destined for wrath, but destined for salvation and life. And what makes this so encouraging for us this evening is the absolute certainty with which the apostle Paul speaks. You are destined, you are appointed, you are chosen, you are elected for salvation. The decision in heaven has been made. The appointment has been set. The election is firm, it is unchangeable. But how do we know? How can we have that much certainty? Paul writes in chapter one, verse four of 1 Thessalonians. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Friends, you will not face wrath this evening. You will obtain salvation because God has chosen you. Or as one pastor said, like this. This destiny, this appointment for salvation did not happen because of this conversion. The conversion happened because of the appointment. And how did Paul know that? How did he know that they had been chosen? Verse five of chapter one. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Friends, one of the things that Paul points to is that people's lives were changed by the gospel. And because of that, he can say it's sure, it's certain, it's hopeful, there's no wrath, there's only salvation. That's the content of their salvation. But this are, there is also the ground of their salvation. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, you will not receive wrath, but you will receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is possible 
because of what Jesus has done. What did he do? Verse 10, he died for us. Friends, this time of year, we miss out on the beauty of the message. The one that was born was born to die for you, for me, for all who would believe. Children here this evening, if you get nothing else out of this message, get this. Jesus Christ lived to die for you. And if you believe in him, you can have life in his name. He died for you that you can have hope of heaven. Brothers and sisters, Paul anchors this hope, this salvation in Christ, in Christ's death. He died for us in our place. He was punished instead of us, bearing wrath that we deserved. This is everywhere in the Bible. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Romans chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. His death is the reason that we can have hope on Christmas Eve. He dealt with our sins completely. The astonishing Christmas gift is that he doesn't deal with some of it. He deals with all of it completely. He entered our world of flesh and blood, of sickness and sorrow, of tears and death, that we might have hope of everlasting life. Friends, God did not ordain the cross of Christ to communicate the insignificance of your sins. He sent his son to communicate the significance of how horrible our sin was, but how merciful his salvation was. The content of salvation, the ground of salvation, notice third, the purpose of salvation, verse 10 of chapter five. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The purchase of Jesus' death brings us reconciliation. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Without his death, Our destiny is hopeless, but because of his death, we have hope of everlasting life. This verse stresses the particular purpose of Christ's death. The connection of this purpose to what proceeds explains the salvation in verse nine as living together with Christ. And it is this sentence that we see that teaches us a pattern that we see throughout the apostle Paul. Notice how he links together purpose statements all throughout his writing. Romans 14 verse nine. To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. 2 Corinthians 15, 5. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Irenaeus would say, Christ became what we are in order that we might become what he is. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul wants us to see this interchange. Jesus offers what we could not offer. This time of year is a time of giving gifts. You offer to people something special. But friends, God gives us in Christ something that we could not bring about for ourselves or for anyone else. He died as our substitute that we might live. As Packer said, Jesus Christ our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined and so won forgiveness, adoption, and glory for us. The sole purpose of his incarnation was our redemption, as Calvin would say. Even death, the ultimate limiting factor of human experience, is overcome by Christ. 
the content of his salvation, the ground of his salvation, the purpose of his salvation. Notice fourth and last, the responsibility of salvation. It's the reason that we've gathered here this evening, verse 11 of chapter five. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You might not know it, but your presence here this evening is one of your primary ministries as a Christian and a believer in Jesus Christ. You gather together to encourage one another. Encourage one another with your very presence, reminding one another that you're not alone. Encourage one another with your singing, reminding everybody else in the room that you believe these gospel truths with them. Encourage one another as you admonish one another with the gospel before the service and after the service as you greet one another and sit beside each other to teach one another these gospel truths. Paul says that this is our responsibility as those who have believed this gospel. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In a world filled with people who simply tear one another down, online and in person, Paul gives us a very specific, simple task. Build one another up. Build one another up. Build one another up with the gospel. Friends, the most important thing that we can do this evening as we focus our attention on Christ crucified for sinners is to build one another up, reminding one another of the precious truths of the gospel that we hold so dear. These little souls that were up here, stewarding them for glory, everyone else's presence that is here, stewarding them and pointing them toward Christ. The ground of our mutual encouragement is the work that Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Paul wants us to see that this gospel, this precious truth, is meant to build us up so that we can continue to strive forward in hope together. And notice what he says in verse 11. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are already doing. Now, if you're like me, it's irritating to be told to do what you're already doing. In fact, one of the things that I often do to my kids is I ask them to do the very thing that they're doing to get a rise out of them. But Paul's not trying to get a rise out of people here. Paul is actually trying to encourage us to persist in doing the very simple work of building one another up. You want to change the world? Believe the gospel and build one another up in the gospel. Proclaim Christ born and Christ crucified and encourage one another to believe that gospel. Declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light and encourage other people to do the same. You are ready in this season to do this great work by your simple presence here this evening. And what season of the year is better than this one? To encourage one another with the gospel as we gather around dinner tables and trees, sitting in living rooms or travel with one another, as we give gifts or encourage one another for this purpose, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now, a quick bit of audience participation. If you believed the gospel under 15 years of age, would you raise your hand? 14 years of age. Keep your hands up. 13 years of age, 12 years of age, 10 years of age, 9 years of age, 8 years of age, 7 years of age, 6 years of age, 5, 4, 3, 
Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful testimony to what we do this time of year as we encourage one another with the gospel. From three to 15 and beyond, God is merciful to save all who would trust in him. Why would we not encourage one another with this precious gospel? If you're a Christian, God has not destined you for wrath. God has intervened. And this night, this even, evening, this season of the year reminds us of those precious truths. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, God teaches us in particular that God rescued a particular people because of what Jesus has done. That's the point of Christmas. And that's why we celebrate the baby born in Bethlehem was born to die that we might have life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these friends. I thank you for this truth of the gospel. I thank you for this gospel that saves three-year-olds and 30-year-olds, 33-year-olds and 63-year-olds, and everyone in between. Father, we thank you for this precious gospel, a gospel that we've sung about, a gospel that has been sung to us from these children, a gospel that we've read about, a gospel that we've affirmed in prayer, a gospel that we've meditated on briefly tonight, a gospel that we will proclaim now, a gospel that we will teach one another as we sing, points us forward to a day when our Christ will come again. He came once and he will come again. And because he will come again, we live with hope and look forward in hope. And we ask, Father, that you would stir our affections, that we might live with a bright hope for tomorrow because of what Jesus has done for us, in whose great name we pray. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask you to stand if you have.